Second Peter is a small book towards the end of your Bible, so if you flip open and you haven't hit Revelation, just take a few pages uh, forward and you'll find Second Peter. Second Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his very precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for allowing us to sit under the teaching of your word. Thank you that your spirit is here with us so that your word may be effective and fruitful in our lives. It may challenge us and change us, comfort us and encourage us so that we may follow hard after Christ, that we may make every effort to pursue holiness and righteousness. Lord, I just pray now that your words will be um, true in my mouth, that, that you are our rock and our redeemer, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So 31 years ago, God brought a young man out of a uh, self-righteous life and into a life of, of surrender and dependence on Christ. He had grown up thinking that uh, obedience earned God's favor and that God's love, while available, was conditional. All of a sudden, grace took center stage. God's love did not ebb or flow. And this young man knew without a doubt that there was now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But this young man had a dilemma. Of all of his past good works, they were based on a religious lie. He now knew that he couldn't be good enough to save himself, and he couldn't, and not, he couldn't do anything to earn God's favor. As Ryan has said before, Dan has preached, Christ alone saves and yet, as we, he read more and more of the Bible, he couldn't escape statements such as, keep yourself in the love of God. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. To obey is better than sacrifice. Love your neighbor as yourself and submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. However, Without the framework of works righteousness, these words, these very truths from God's word, just simply gathered dust on the bookshelf of his mind. However, God is a good, good father, 
and he would not leave this young man alone. Through various authors, both old and new, through various preachers, local and distant, and most importantly, through God's very own word, he pressed upon this young man's heart and soul the reality that salvation has an implication. He heard Paul command the Ephesians to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. He heard James say, faith is completed by its works. He resonated with John the Baptist's call to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And he trembled at Jesus' words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Yet questions remained. What does this look like? How do I do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with my God? What does it mean to seek God's kingdom and his righteousness? And of all of this, he asked himself, how do I keep from falling back into works righteousness? All these questions led him to 2 Peter 1, verses 2 through 8. So today, I would like to look at that very same text. But before I do that, there's a term that I want to just define really quickly for us. And the reason I want to do that is because sometimes when you have been in the faith, in the, the religious world for a long time, you start to use terms, and, and you forget maybe what they really mean, or at least their, their fuller meaning. Or if you're, if you're re relatively new, you hear them, you hear the term, you don't know what it means, but you start using it anyway. So the term I want to look at today is sanctification. The Oxford Dictionary offers two, two uh, definitions. The first is, sanctification is the action of making or declaring something holy. And the second is, sanctification is an action or process of being freed from or purified from sin. So not too bad for the Oxford Dictionary. The Eastern Diction Bible Dictionary goes on to say, sanctification is the carrying on to completion work begun in regeneration and extends to the whole person. And then Vine's complete expository dictionary would add that sainthood, sanctification, is not an attainment. It is a state into which God in grace calls sinful people and in which they begin their course as Christians. As we look at those definitions, there's a few words that jump out, at least to me, and they are grace, process, and call. And that is exactly what Peter is describing in our text this morning. So for the purposes of, of the rest of this sermon, I really want to break it down and look at it in three components. The first one is grace, verses 2 and 3. The second one is process, but also the promise of God in verses 4 through 7. And then finally, looking at the fact that this is a calling on our lives in verses 3 and 8. So read with me again verses 2 and 3. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord, Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory 
and excellence. So as we consider the journey of sanctification, we can't begin without grace. Just think about it. Dan has been preaching through Romans, uh, and all the way back to Romans 1, all the way up to Romans uh, 13, where he preached last week, it has been clear that we would not seek God without grace. We would not be able to stand before God without grace. We would not cling to Christ in faith without grace. We would not know the reality of our adoption or the fact that there is no condemnation without grace. So here Peter's extending that truth to our growth and sanctification. We see that God has given us everything we need for life and for godliness. And I know it's, it's a thing that everybody says, but I have to say it anyway. In the Greek, in the ESV it says all things. The Greek word for all means all. It's everything. Everything we need. Exactly what we need to obey him and to follow him. Now, I know that we're all on different stages of our walk with Christ. Some are just starting out. Some have been doing this for decades. Some are seeing progress. Maybe some are in, in a stagnant period or maybe even regressing. Some may feel the Spirit is walking right by their side. And others may feel that he's nowhere to be found. And some may feel that they are completely alone and without hope. So to each of you, let Jesus speak directly to you. Your loving Savior and King has given you exactly what you need. Exactly what you need to grow in godliness. And we need to abandon the scarcity mindset when it comes to God. That is so important. I want to repeat it and listen to what I'm saying. We need to abandon the scarcity mindset when it comes to God. Just one example out of the whole of the Bible, the feeding of the 5,000. If it demonstrates anything, it demonstrates this, that God always gives more than enough. And there is no gift that even slightly diminishes who God is and what he's able to do. So as we pursue him, he willingly, graciously, freely, abundantly gives us everything that we need. So I have to pause here and admit that I've not always lived like this is true. I would have affirmed these truths on a test, but I lived as if I had to produce godliness in my life. I had to manufacture holiness. Or sometimes I felt like I had to convince God that I was worthy of his mercy and his grace. My friends, this dishonors God. Who am I to work for what has freely been given? What does it say about God if I have to beg him for what he has promised to give? So the first and foundational aspect of pursuing Christ in holiness, growing in our sanctification, is the grace of God. And the second is built directly upon it. God has promised to do this in our lives. Look at with me at verse 4. 
he, that is Christ, has granted to us his very precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So that's a packed verse. So just break, let's break it down just very quickly. First, we all face sinful desires, right? And left unchecked, we know that those the sinful desires will lead to corruption. And elsewhere in the Bible, including the book of Romans, it is very clear that this corruption goes to the core, the core of who we are. But because of Jesus, because of his life and his death and his resurrection, we have escaped this corruption. And now we have God's very great and precious promises that we may enjoy union with him. And we may be partakers of what he has provided for us. All of that to say this. Salvation is not an end in itself. It is a transformative event that begins the journey of sanctification. Dan said it last week. We were saved, we are being saved, and one day we will be saved. We are growing. We're on this journey of sanctification, growing in holiness, partaking more and more of our union in Christ. So if you're anything like me, you're saying, that's fine, John. Thank you very much. That seems super spiritual. What do I do? What do we really do with, with that, all that head knowledge? So I sense Peter in the, working in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was anticipating the very same question. Let's look at the next verses. For this very reason, everything we just talked about, grace, promise, escaping from corruption, for this very reason, we make, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Virtue with knowledge, Knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So I want to pause here to tell you a story. Take a drink, too. When I was asked to preach on this weekend, I was praying that the Spirit would lead me to a passage that God wanted his people to hear. So I thought about Isaiah. I thought about, I considered Matthew. And of course, I always have Ephesians on my short list. But nothing really resonated. And then as the Spirit would have it, I was listening to a sermon a few weeks ago. And one point in one sermon was this. Following Christ takes effort. That led me to verse 5, which then led to the sermon. But what I didn't know was how convicting that opening phrase of verse 5 would be on me. So we can see God's call to make, for us to make every effort in our pursuit of righteousness. But a quick look in the mirror told me that I was not making every effort in pursuit of righteousness. And then, 
just to make the point, with equal conviction, Spirit took me to Hebrews 12, verse 4, where the author says, In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your own blood. I share that to say this. If this sermon lands on you with any weight at all, please know it's landing with just as much weight, if not more, on me. So back to the question. How do we become partakers of the divine nature? We need to lean 110% on the grace of God and the promises that were fulfilled in Christ. And... We need to make every effort to grow in godliness and to become established in the righteousness and to put to death the sin that lives within us. And you say, that's a contradiction. How can you be living in grace and working it out? And I I know, I know, but it's what the Bible says. 100% fully grace and 100% work it out. So as we consider just for a few moments what it is like to hunger and thirst after righteousness, I want to be abundantly clear. I am not saying you've been saved by grace, now go, now go be perfected by your works. And I am not saying if you work hard enough and long enough, you will achieve perfection. Both of these concepts are heresies. They're a direct contradiction of Scripture. In fact, the entire book of Galatians was written to confront the idea that somehow we can accomplish our salvation on our own. We are 100% reliant on the grace of God and the power of the Spirit. In every book of the Bible, perhaps every chapter in the Bible, will remind us that we will never achieve perfection here on earth. Progress? Yes. Perfection? And if you doubt this, please go to Romans chapter 7, the last 10 or so verses. Paul has a clear statement on the battle that still rages within each one of us. So how do we fight sin? How do we resist temptation? How do we love our neighbor as ourselves? The Spirit inspired Peter to record a process here in verses 5 to 7. It is not the only process, but it is a process. And the more I've looked into it, the the more I've considered it, the more robust this process is. It's a growing in grace. It's a building upon what God has already done in your lives. Wherever you are in your journey, there's a building block to go further on with Christ. And... He's given us everything we need for this journey, this journey of progress. But like training for a sport or training for a career or training for just about anything else in life, it takes effort, grace-driven effort. So add to your faith virtue. So we need to look at our own faith. Where is it at? It may be a faith that is static or stagnant, a faith that simply looks back on something that happened five years ago or 15 years ago and ask ourselves, what if we trusted God today 
What if I obeyed him rather than myself? What if I presume good intentions of my spouse or my coworkers or my neighbors or those I disagree with online? What if I choose to honor God with all the little things in my life rather than the two or three big things that pop up from time to time? And then adding virtue to our virtue, knowledge. Now, this is not the simple, simply head knowledge, like reading a book, as if somehow going to seminary would make us holier people. Rather, the Spirit is challenging us to see, thing, see things through the eyes of experience. For those of you who know me, know I have to throw in a Grand Canyon illustration in every sermon. So here it is. You can see pictures of the Grand Canyon in books or online. You can read adventures of people who hike the Grand Canyon and go there. You can listen to people like me gush about its beauty and its majesty. And you can even go to YouTube and kind of sort of experience it through the videos. But one step out to the rim changes everything. It is wider. It is deeper. It is longer. It is more massive than anything I can describe to you. And that's just one sliver of God's great creation. So what about our walk with Christ? We can read about it. We'll book about it. We can hear others testify about it. But what about me? What about you? Have we really experienced the grace of Christ in our lives? Have we really received the reality that there's no condemnation, that all of our sins are gone forever? Are we ready? Are we really ready to trust Christ with everything in our lives? Are we really ready to experience the forgiveness? the freedom, the adoption, the inclusion that comes by the grace of Christ and the power of the Spirit. So adding to your knowledge, self-control. You may not know this about me, um, but I wrestle with self-control. If there's a question asked, I'm the first one with the answer. If there's a detail that's misstated, I want to correct it. If there is an episode of some show, some online thing that, I'm, that just dropped, i got to catch it now. But it goes further than that. If there's a sinful desire, I struggle to resist it. If there's an offense, I'm quick to react. If there's an idea expressed that I di disagree with, I am quick with the rebuttal. And yet, one of the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. And as we grow in our experiential knowledge of Christ, we see more and more clearly how he was the epitome of self-control. Think about it. In all the, all the episodes in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus interacting with, with the people of beyond grace, what is his number one characteristic, especially with the Pharisees? Self-control. But how often have I prayed, 
have you prayed for self-control? That, that, that God would somehow put a throttle on my mind and a throttle on my mouth. Oh, Spirit, would you do that today for us? And adding to your self-control, steadfastness. Quick survey time. How many of you have ever gone on a diet, exercise plan, or Bible reading program? Come on, really? All right, anyway, how many of you have kept that uh, diet, exercise plan, or Bible reading program for a month, for a year, for a decade? So what about our pursuit with Christ? How do we stick with it year after year, decade after decade? Peter calls us to steadfastness, to endurance, to faithfulness. And that requires something of us that our 21st century culture that we live and breathe in does not grasp, does not promote, and does not value. And that is a commitment despite the cost. Now, we have examples throughout the Bible of men and women who are called to a commitment and then challenged in those commitments. Some gave up to their demise, but others stood firm to the glory of God. My favorite example of this is Ruth, in part because she could have left Naomi with a clear conscience and, go back and gone back to Moab, but she didn't do that. Instead, her steadfast love of God, which dis- displayed itself in her steadfast love for Naomi. So we need to add to our steadfastness godliness. See, there is a double-edged sword in steadfast self-control. One edge is this. It takes work and discipline. And dare I say it, none of us like either of those things. But it also leads or can lead to a real sense of I can do this. I can accomplish this. I can muscle myself into this. And in fact, there's a whole philosophy out there called asceticism that prides itself in the human ability for self-control. We must grow through that. In our self-control, we must grow through that into righteousness. It is the why behind what we do. So if you have the rigor of a Bible study program, is it simply to check a box? Or is it to get to know God better? Is our discipline of prayer, because a pastor said you need to be doing this, or a book said this is the way you should be doing it, or is it to commune with our Heavenly Father and live in dependence on our brother? And what about our sin? Dan rightly reminded us last week we need to be putting off the old self and putting on the new self. But why? Simple obedience to a command? It's a great place to start. But can we get to a deeper reason, a fuller reason? Can we do what is right and good because God in Christ has made us right good 
then add to your godliness brotherly affection. So up to this point, Peter has kept the categories pretty broad. But now he tightens the boundaries so we can focus on how we interact with one another. See, the challenge is this. It is hard to be godly, to think godly thoughts, to speak godly words. But it all stands and falls in this. How do we interact with one another? I challenge you to name one sin in the entirety of the Bible that was not both an offense to a holy God and also an offense to a brother or a sister. Even the first sin involved two people conspiring against God to become like God. And in the process, they sinned against God, they sinned against each other, and they sinned against every person who would ever live on the face of the earth. And then we need to add to our brotherly affection, love. Now, in my opinion... It's unfortunate that that ESV translated brotherly affection as they did. See, the the phrase in Greek is Philadelphia, which also could be translated brotherly love. And the word love translated is agape, could be translated unconditional love. So verse 7 could read, add to your godliness brotherly love, and add to your brotherly love, unconditional love. So as we work to live in community with one another, brotherly love in Christ, sisterly love in Christ, we're being called to something more. Are we prepared to love the unlovely? Are we prepared to reach out the right hand of forgiveness first, unconditionally? Are we prepared to see the lost and the least not as projects, but as people? People created in the image of God. What would it look like if Jesus' agape love flowed through your life and my life and into the life of another person created in the image of Christ? Quite a list. It's quite the task in front of us. And it's quite the journey that we are to embark on. And just like a journey through the Grand Canyon where you're sitting on the south rim and you're looking over to the north rim 29 miles away and you know you have to go down and through the heat and back up, you say, you know what? I think I'm just going to get on the shuttle, go back to the cabin, go back to sleep. But that is not what God is calling us to. He's calling us to grace-driven effort. So we have seen that our growth in godliness is grounded in the grace of God. We've seen that God has made a promise, promises to provide everything we need for this growth in Christ. And he's laid out a process for us to follow, that we can be, as Paul would say, putting off the old self, putting on the new self. But there's one more thing that we just need to know. We are called to this journey of growth. Look at verse 3 again. Christ 
divine power has granted us all things that, that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, called us to his very own glory and excellence. Here's the crux of the matter. Growth in Christ is not an optional extra for the elite of the elect. We are all called to it. And as I've heard another pastor say, we are not fans watching Christ's kingdom unfold in front of us. We are players on the field working together with Christ in the power of the Spirit to bring his kingdom into reality. Or as a different pastor has said, in regards to sin, in the battlefield of the Christian life, there are no rusty swords. I realize that this is a challenge, but consider this from verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, first and foremost, this is a process. This is a journey that we are on. We are all somewhere between the moment of our salvation and the moment we will step into glory with Christ. Somewhere on that journey. Somewhere on that timeline. But has any of us arrived? The answer is no. But likewise, we should not be where we were at the beginning. These qualities must be growing in our lives. And as they do, we will be fruitful and effective for the kingdom of Christ. So John Newton, pastor and hymn writer, former slave trader, by the way, wrote this, and he recorded it well. I am not what I was, and I am not yet what I will be. But by God's grace, I am what I am. Our work is great, our time is short, and the consequences of our labor are infinite. So what about our friend from the beginning of the sermon? What did he do with this passage? What I would like to say is that he dove right in. He started adding virtue to his faith and, and that, to that knowledge and self-control. And that led to steadfastness and godliness, which produced in him brotherly love and finally agape love. Unfortunately, like many of us, he allowed the drift of this world to take him away from the call of Christ's righteous, the, of the call of Christ to sanctification. He let busyness override his prayer time. He gave distractions and diversions more attention than the word of God. He let virtue languish. He allowed self-control to take a holiday. His steadfastness wavered. His godliness dried up. Brotherly love became increasingly difficult to even remember. And agape love was nowhere to be seen. All too familiar, right? You see, Isaiah 53.6 is not just for those separated from God. It applies to all of us. We all like sheep. We've gone astray. 
we have turned, each one of us, to his own way. Or as the hymn writer has said very profoundly, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But here's what my friend realized. Here's what I've come to realize. And I pray here's what you realize. God is the God of super abundant grace. Hear that again. God is the God of super abundant grace. Jesus is always calling us to return. And he is waiting for us to come and follow him, to pick up our cross, as it were, to repent and believe. So I want to end where Peter started, the grace of God. Wherever you are in your journey, two days, two years, two decades, there's more than enough grace for you to take the next step. And whether you think you are increasing in these qualities or whether you know you've fallen into the swamp of despair, Jesus is more than ready to rescue and to redeem and to restore. So take heart, my friends, my brothers, my sisters. Take heart. And make every effort. Supplement your faith with virtue. And to your virtue, knowledge. And to your knowledge, self-control. And to your self-control, steadfastness. And to steadfastness, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly affection. And to brotherly affection, love. Father, sometimes your word is a challenge to us. So I pray today that for those of us who are challenged, that you would give us the grace, your grace, your mercy, your power through the Spirit to do what you're calling us to do, to take that next step on the process of sanctification, to be growing more in love with you, more in dependence on Christ, more willing to live out our salvation, walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we receive, and to be ambassadors for Christ in this dark and dying world. I pray this all in Jesus' precious in holy name, amen.